Welcome to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. We're doing a question and answer thing tonight. And so let me, uh, first of all, those of you that couldn't be here that are on Zoom, what I had said in the two emails was send an email with your question. And so we've got seven questions via email. I've already got one in my, oh, two in my hand here. Uh, hold on, let me get rid of that. So here are the rules. Because we're on Zoom, if you ask a question from the back of the room, we're going to hear you, but the Zoom people are not going to hear you. So try to make your question concise, one sentence, two sentences, as much as you can, because I, at my advanced age, have to remember it and then repeat it to the what? Yeah. No, I'm not hungry. Oh, that's not what you said. Uh, I have to repeat it for the Zoom people. Um, that, that's uh, number one. Okay. Um, we have paper to write down questions. Obviously, if you, what we're going to do is do the email questions first. But we do have paper. Chris, raise your hand back there. Chris has paper uh, and a pen. So if you want to write down a question and hand it in, that's great. But if you're bold enough to raise your hand and speak out loud in a crowd, you can do that as well. Um, I am fully aware, as you heard me pray, I'm fully aware that I'm not omniscient, meaning I don't know everything. So I'm expecting, as usual, to not have every answer. When that happens, I will make a note of the question, research it, and let you know the answer. Um, let's see. What I want to know is, because we've got seven questions via email, and I've got two here, I want to get an idea of how fast do I need to answer questions and move on. So if you are going to ask a question tonight, would you raise your hand? You don't have to speak right now. Okay, so not many, just a few. One, two, and then I've got two here. So not that many. So we can go sort of slowly. All right. So um, basically, it's a question and answer thing. I've done maybe 15 of these um, in churches, my old church, and then here. And then we did it once a month for six months about three years ago, where the pastor and I gave out free pizza dinners at local pizza places and invited anybody that wanted to come and ask any questions just have a free pizza dinner as a way of getting people to hear the gospel and we had homeless people and we had what yeah you want free pizza okay sorry well there's cookies back there what do you want you want the pizza okay i understand so anyway that's the story um question number one and i'm not going to say who it is if you want me to i will but anyway this person wrote me and said, when you're discussing your teaching, meaning mine, on the rapture, uh, oh, oh, she was talking to somebody about it. Um, I had made the comment that until the 1800s, the predominant view of the church was the view that I teach about the rapture. So he's going, no, no, no. I'm going to explain what the rapture is. So she wants to know what's the documentation on that? Where did the pre-trib rapture start? All of that. So with that in mind, um, let's define our terms very quickly. Um, first of all, Jesus said that he would return to the earth. Okay. He, in Acts chapter 1, you can look it up later. Uh, there's Bibles back there, by the way, in the, at the little table. He said he would return to the earth to the Mount of Olives, physically, visibly. That's what Jesus said. We're going to look at some scriptures later on. Um, so there's the second coming. He, why does he come back to the earth? He comes back to, first of all, resurrect 
all the believers who have died in the past. They will rise out of their graves in glorified bodies, no longer able to get sick or die or be injured or even to sin. Glorified bodies. Okay, that's number one. Number two, those that are alive at that minute, this is called the rapture, will be changed in an instant. First Corinthians uh, 15, 50, right around there. In an instant, we get glorified bodies if we're alive and it happens right now. Thirdly, he will come to reign on the earth. Most Christians believe in a literal thousand-year millennium, okay, where Christ reigns on the earth and righteousness exists on planet earth. We will live there with him. We will reign with him, R-E-G-I-N, not R-A-I-N. And um, at the end of that time, well, we don't need to go into that. Okay, rapture, that's that moment when we're changed if we're alive in an instant and we're believers. uh, I'm sorry, those that have died are resurrected. The third category of people is unbelievers. They will be judged by the Lord Jesus when he returns fairly so that all sin will be judged one of two ways. Either the sinner pays forever outside the presence of God, that's the definition of hell, or he paid for your sins on the cross and therefore there's no punishment for you because Jesus took your punishment. So I know that you people here in this room are awake say amen. amen. Okay, good. Those of you on Zoom, you can't say amen, but you can wave or do something. All right, good. I saw the wave. Good. Um, okay, so this person asked, what about the rapture? Um, didn't the early church, didn't the church fathers believe in the rapture? Um, and the answer is they did. Okay, but here's another term. This is complicated stuff. End times, the study of end times, eschatology. There's a thing in the Bible, Jesus named it, the Great Tribulation. Thalipsis in Greek, it means trouble, great trouble. Jesus calls it the time, the greatest time of trouble on planet Earth. From Daniel 9, we learn that it is a seven-year period. The first half isn't nearly as bad as the second half of the three and a half years. So there's a Great Tribulation. So the question, since all, pretty much all believers believe in a second coming and a resurrection where we're changed in an instant, dead Christians are raised, the question comes, when does the rapture occur? So there are four main views, really three, and really two that are popular. Um, 30, roughly 36% of pastors today believe in the pre-tribulation rapture. So here's the seven-year period. Can you see it? Here comes the timeline. Seven years of extreme trouble. During that time, the Antichrist comes to power. One man will rule the whole world through a government that appears good and benevolent, and he's actually Satan's guy. Okay, seven years. So that's bad for Christians because he's persecuting and killing Christians and Jews. Got the picture? At the same time during the seven years, somebody else is very angry and pouring down wrath. And guess who it is? It's God on planet Earth as a last ditch effort to get people to wake up that he is God and they better turn to him because the end is coming. So you can see why this is a time of tremendous trouble on the earth. Um, So the question is, does this snatching away of believers happen before the seven year tribulation 
During the seven-year tribulation, that would be mid-tribulation rapture or pre-wrath rapture, it's called. That's the minority position. Or does the rapture occur concurrent at the same time as the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is definitely at the end of the tribulation? So we're going to get into the rapture and stuff later, I have a feeling. But for now... Um, a part of the pre-tribulation rapture is what's called dispensationalism. Anybody ever heard that word before? Raise your hands. <clears throat> dispensationalism is the idea started, by the way, listen, in the 1800s. Okay? Jesus dies around 30 AD. Almost 1800 years, there was no dispensationalism. It started in the 1800s. I'm going to show you that the pre-tribulation rapture pretty much started at the same time. Were there a smattering of other writings in the 1800 years before that where there was a sort of a pre-tribulation rapture? Yes. I scoured books and the internet, and in 1800 years, I found about 15 references, most of which were bogus. I ended up with six or seven in the 1800-year period where it's mentioned. Okay, so that's what this person who's here tonight, that's what her question is. Uh, can you provide some documentation why you think that? I can't take questions right now. Sorry, because of time. Um, but write them down if you want. Okay, uh, let's see. So, some scholars, Robert Cameron, uh, 1830s. Prior to that date, no hint of any approach to such a pre-tribulation belief can be found in any Christian, Christian literature from Polycarp down. Who's Polycarp? He's a guy that was the protege of the Apostle John, a friend of John, much younger. John is an old man, taught him. Okay, uh, hmm, uh, let's see. Um, this doctrine was never taught by a, a church father or a doctor of the church. Uh, no standard commentator or professor in, of the Greek language at any theological school until the middle of the 19th century. That's the 1800s. That's when that belief occurred. Okay. So, um, when, okay, this is um, Tregellis, another scholar. When the theory of a secret coming of Christ was first brought forward about the year 1832, it was adopted with eagerness. The pre-tribulation rapture is a secret coming. He comes above the earth raises people up, changes people, we ascend, and the pre-tribulation rapture says we all go to heaven with him for the seven years. We miss the whole tribulation. We miss the Antichrist. We miss all that persecution, and then we return at the second coming. So in a sense, if you want to be honest, the pre-tribulation rapture theory has two second comings. First coming, Bethlehem. Second coming, pre-tribulation rapture before all hell breaks loose on earth. Third coming, second coming, or two stages seven years apart, some would say. Um, I'm still answering the question, where did, where did it start? F.F. Um, F. Bruce is one of the leading Bible scholars in the world. Where did uh, John Darby get the pre-tribulation rapture idea? It was in the air in the 1820s and 30s among eager students of unfulfilled prophecy. I could go on. There's another really well-known Bible scholar, Harry Ironside. Um, until John Nelson Darby, uh, 
the pre-tribulation rapture is scarcely found in a single book or sermon through a period of, he calls it 1,600 years. I call it 18. Okay. Uh, okay, so now let me go to another document, which is, there we go. Church Father quotes. So did anybody from the time of Christ dying on the cross until now, until, sorry, the 1800s, mention that Jesus would take out believers before the tribulation? <clears throat> the answer is, some people quote uh, Irenaeus or Irenaeus. He lived 130 to 202 AD. There is a quote he makes about the pre-tribulation rapture. Um, by the way, all these documents I'm using, I'm going to send with as instead of notes uh, in, to, an, uh, to y'all via email. Uh, and therefore, when in the end the church shall suddenly be caught up from this, it is said there shall be tribulation such as not been since the beginning, neither shall be. He's quoting Matthew. For this is the last contest of the righteous in which they overcome, they overcome and they are crowned with incorruption. But he also writes in the same document what sounds like a post-tribulation rapture statement. So I'm discounting that one. Then there's a guy who lived, born in the year 200, Cyprian. He mentions a pre-trib rapture, but he also wrote something that contradicts it and says it happens after the tribulation. For these to be legit quotes, they, ha they have to mention that the rapture occurs before the tribulation because I believe the rapture occurs at the end. I believe in a rapture. I just think it's part of the second coming on the same day. We'll get to that. Okay, Victorinus, 240 to 303 is when he lived. This is a legit mention of the pre-trib rapture. For the heaven will be rolled away, that is, the church shall be taken away, and every mountain and island moved from their places. In the last persecution, all men departed from their places. The good will be removed, seeking to avoid persecution. That sounds like they're not going to be in the tribulation. With me? So that's a legit one, Victorinus. Then there's the Apocalypse of Elijah and the Apocalypse of Pseudo-Ephraim. Mentions a pre-trib rapture. What's the problem with that, Joe? I'm not going to read the quote. But there's a lot of questioning of the reliability of both of them. Nobody knows who they were, when they wrote, or where they wrote, or who the author was. Those are floating around. We don't know how old they are, but they are pre-trib rapture writings. Keep in mind, we're talking about 1,800 years. The, the brother Dulcino, leader of the 14th century, now we've moved from the 1st century to the 14th century. Uh, some critics, uh, oh, okay. I'm, I'm reading the wrong thing. Okay, there we go. Um, he, none of his writings have survived, but there's an anonymous Latin document written in 1316 where he says um, that the church is raptured before the tribulation, but he also says when the Antichrist is dead, he, Dalcino, brother Dalcino, hold on to your seats, would then become the holy pope, and his preserved followers will descend on the earth and will preach the right faith of Jesus to all. Kind of questionable. Now we skip to 1722, Morgan Edwards. Um, his he starts to sound like pre-trib, and then he ends up saying it happens in the middle of the tribulation. So I'm kind of 
throwing that one out. The dead saints will be raised and the living changed at Christ's appearing in the air about three and a half years before the millennium. That would be halfway through the tribulation. By the way, some people think the tribulation is only three and a half years. Most think it's seven. Just letting you know. This is complicated stuff. I apologize. Okay. Thomas Vincent, 1634 to 1668. Legit pre-trib rapture. Um, when their believing relations shall be caught away from them and carried into the air, the rest of the glorious train of the saints. It's, he's a real pre-trib rapture guy. Same thing with Joseph Mead. 1586 is when he was born. Uh, after this, our gathering together unto Christ at his coming. The saints translated into the air. They'll preserve during the conflagra conflagration of the earth, meaning the tribulation, because we're not here. Then there's uh, Jer Jeremiah Burroughs, everybody quotes, not everybody, but some do. Um, but he never mentions that it's before the tribulation in spades. Um, there's a few others, William Aspinall and John Brown, same thing. They don't really say pre-trib rapture. Okay, I'm moving on. William Hook, legit, 1600 to 1667, legit pre-trib rapture. But it has his name on it, but he didn't write it. It's an anonymous tract. I'm trying to show you that these sources are kind of questionable. It doesn't mean the preacher of rapture isn't true. I'm answering the question that somebody asked, which is, can you prove what you said that before 1800s, you really didn't see the preacher of rapture floating around? Like I said, now 36% of pastors believe it. 18% of pastors believe the post-tribulation rapture. Oliver Haywood's born in 1630. Increase, that's his first name, Mather, 1639 to 1723. Legit pre-trib rapture statements are made. Um, so uh, I, I hope that proves what I was saying, that it's around, it, there's six or seven in 1800 years, but there are thousands of people writing about the tribulation, writing about the rapture, and saying that it happened, uh, that it happens after the tribulation. That was the majority view. Um, while we're at it, let me just do this for you. Mm -hmm. Oh, there it is. Okay. Who believed in the post-tribulation rapture, that the second coming is the rapture? Uh, John Calvin, uh, virtually all the church fathers, John Calvin, Martin Luther, John Knox, John Bunyan, Isaac Newton, Charles Spurgeon, Charles Hodge, George Whitfield, Adam Clark, Jonathan Edwards, a lot of these aren't going to mean anything to you, but F.F. F. Bruce, the guy I told you that's one of the leading scholars, D.L. Moody, Matthew Henry, Walter Martin, William Wilberforce, Robert Gundry, John Wycliffe, C.S. Lewis, G. Campbell Morgan, Leon Morris, John Newton, John Piper, current preacher now, um, R.C. Sproul, who passed away a few years ago, so did D. James Kennedy, Corey Tenboom, William Tyndale Publishing, right? Charles Wesley, A.T. Robertson, probably the leading New Testament scholar there is right now, Greg Kokel. Um, so I'm just answering that one question. Can you show that it really was, for the majority, not a pre-trib rapture until the 1830s. Did it really take root then? It did. Um, John Nelson Darby uh, wrote about it. Then a girl, a 16-year-old girl had a vision. Uh, 
of the church being taken out before the tribulation, Margaret MacDonald in Scotland. He interviewed her and started preaching it. And it caught on like wildfire because a guy named Schofield, Schofield Reference Bible, put it in the notes like it was part of the Bible. Fact, we'll be raptured out before. That's what this means, that's what that means. But we all had for the first century till now, the same scriptures and pretty much nobody saw it till 1830. That's my contention anyway. Doesn't make it wrong, but Walter Martin used to say, if it's new, it's probably not true. And if it's true, it's probably not new. But that doesn't negate whether it's true or not. I'm just saying, answering that one question. Let me move to question two. I got to do the email ones first. Uh, okay, this interesting one. Regarding unbelievers and eternity, this person is also here tonight. They too will have resurrected bodies and then face judgment. Okay, the point is this. Ephesians 2, 1 says unbelievers are dead in their trespasses and sins. You say, well, I know some unbelievers and they look alive to me. They are alive physically. They have a body, beating heart, breathing, right? They're alive. They have a soul, but they're not alive according to the Bible. Ephesians 2, 1, dead in our trespasses and sins. Spiritually, unbelievers are not sick spiritually. They are dead spiritually. That's why you need to be, wait for it, born again, right? So the question this person asks is, what about unbelievers? They live, they died, okay, yes, and Jesus comes back. They're all resurrected in Revelation 20 to face judgment, and then they go to hell, outer darkness. How do they go there? What kind of bodies are they resurrected in? kind of thing. Um, this, or will they only be body and soul still with no spirit? You people are so smart. Anyway, I wish I was. Okay. So um, let's see. We, we already said that the, the believers will be resurrected in bodies suited for the new dimension of eternal life. Bodies that don't need to eat, bodies that can't get sick, can't die, can't sin. What about unbelievers? Um, John 5, 28 to 30, a time, Jesus talking, a time is coming when all who are in their graves, listen, all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Resurrection. Those who have done good will rise to live. That's you. Those who have done evil will rise to be condemned sent to hell. We know that hell is eternal, unfortunately. There's weeping ongoing in the Greek tense of the verb and gnashing of teeth. It's not, they're over there and they burn, they're burned up in an instant. It's ongoing. In Luke 16, the rich man is an unbeliever. Lazarus is a believer. They both die in Luke 16. And the, un, the rich ruler, the rich man, who's an unbeliever, is conscious and suffering and can feel pain. So the answer to this question is they have to have some kind of body. The Bible doesn't really tell us, but he's able to feel pain. He's able to speak the sky in Luke 16, uh, the rich man, as is Lazarus, but when he's a believer. Um, some think that God will give unbelievers some sort of a spiritual body, not that they're saved, but so that they can live forever where they're going, outside of the presence of God. 
when the three disciples, uh, Matthew, I'm sorry, Peter, James, and John saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Do you remember that? They see Moses and Elijah, right? And they had bodies, right? And they were speaking with Jesus. So we know that they're saved. And that's before the mass resurrection. So the, the short answer to this question, unfortunately, is we're not, we're told a lot about the kind of bodies we're going to have, not told much about the unbelievers, except to say that they have to have some sort of a body because they live eternally outside the presence of God in outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, their worm doesn't die. There's all these descriptions of hell. The good news is Jesus paid for the sins of the world and there's no need to go there if we will trust him in faith and believe in him. Uh, God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.1. So we look forward to getting resurrected bodies. If your body ever hurts like mine does, and I know a few of you, that's the case, it's going to be awesome, right? You will never have another health problem. Somebody tonight here told me they got a sore back and they have a problem that needs surgery. In fact, I know two people that uh, that's the case for. So that's the best I can do with that one. What kind of a body will they have? The Bible doesn't say, but they, they're somehow suited for eternal life where they're headed. Okay, next one, number three. This is an interesting one. We mentioned early the, earlier the millennium. Remember the thousand-year period after the seven years the world history ends, thousand years of peace on the earth, Jesus reigns on the earth. That's what this question is about. So this person writes that uh, my, some friends of my husband and I are very much into the idea of post-millennialism, post-millennial theology, okay? What I just told you is historic pre, uh, I'm sorry, uh, pre-millennial historic doctrine. What I, what I believe, world history, seven years of tribulation, Jesus returns at the end, thousand years of Jesus reigning. But there are other views. There's the amillennial view. Ah means no, no millennium. Amillennialists, most of them believe we're in the millennium right now. And Jesus is reigning on the earth. And Satan is bound. I... I <laughs> I look at the world, what's going on, and think, I don't know that I see that. Okay, so that's amillennial, no millennium. But there's post-millennialism. I know someone very well that believes in post-millennial theology. So um, this person is asking, what's your take on that? Um, okay, so what is post-millennial theology? You might be surprised to learn what it is. Um, this started in 1658, the earliest statement of post-millennial eschatology, end times. Okay. Post-millennialists believe that the world is going to get better and better and more and more Christian, and we're going to evangelize the whole world. And by the time Christ comes back, virtually everyone, or just about everyone, will be believers. It's going to get better and better. Do you read the newspaper? Uh, one of the articles I read about this subject said, think of the 1950s. Some of you were alive then. Me, I, you know, 
I'm only 30. So was it, was life on earth better in the fifties? Were morals better in the fifties or are they better now? Are more percentages of people Christian now? Is there more divorces now or was there more in the fifties? Was there more crime in the fifties or more crime now? I believe the world is getting worse, folks. I'm not a pessimist. I'm an optimist by nature. Postmillennialism says that Satan's going to totally be defeated. Pretty much everybody's going to become a Christian. Okay, why do you think that's not true, Joe? I can tell by your faces most of you don't think that's true either. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 12, talks about the period before the second coming. Remember, Post-millennialists believe right before he comes back, pretty much everybody's going to be a Christian. We're just going to take over the world. Listen to Paul. He calls it a time of great apostasy falling away. Antichrist is leading, ruling the whole world. Doesn't sound like a golden age of Christianity. Daniel 7, the man of sin, the Antichrist, will persecute and prevail over the saints, that's believers, until the second coming. Revelation 19, the second coming, Jesus returns to a world that is at war with him, right? Uh, Jesus said the last, let's get Jesus's take on this. He said the last days will be comparable to, and he picks two periods of human history, and they are the worst morally ever. One is the time of Noah, and the other is the time of lot. This is uh, Jesus talking himself, Luke 17. Okay, what's going on here? Noah's generation and lots, it was so wicked, so violent, so immoral, God had to destroy every single person. That's what Jesus says the world's going to look like when he comes back. Noah's day. The earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence, Genesis 6. Lot's day. The men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. So sinful, he's got to wipe them out except for Lot and his family or Noah and his family. Um, Jesus concludes by saying in Luke 17, even so, it will, that, even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed, when he comes back. Uh, so uh, Matthew 24, Jesus says, talking about the end times, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. It doesn't sound like a golden age of Christianity. Uh, Christians are always and always will be in the minority. Many are called, few are chosen. Narrow is the way that leads to salvation, and few there be that find it. Broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be that find it. So post-millennialism, I'll give them this. It is the most optimistic view. I love that. I hope it's true. I don't don't see it in the Bible, and I don't see it in human history. I don't see things getting better and better. Uh, Let's see. Why does God cause the Antichrist to rise to power? Because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. For this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. It sounds like it's getting worse and worse. The same person asked another question. I'll try to be quick on this one. How to know when we're straying from the truth? Because people believe all kinds of things, right? And some of them, maybe you know this, 
the cults, Mormonism, seven, uh, um, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, get most of their people, not unchurched people that never go to church and they get convinced to come. Most Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons used to go to Christian church. Well, how would they, why were they so fooled? Why couldn't they tell they were straying from the truth? That's the heart of the question. Okay. What are you doing? Conduct. Number one, are you reading the Bible less and less or more and more? Are you praying less or not at all? Are you attending church less or not at all? Who are you listening to? The world? What teachers are you listening to on the internet, on television, on the radio? Who are you reading books by? Who are you fellowshipping with the most? Believers or unbelievers? These are just all things to ponder. Here's one. Are you sinning more or less lately? Uh, is the fruit of the Spirit evident in your life? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But here's the key, I think. How, why would someone who goes to church end up being a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness or a New Ager or whatever? How did they get off track? The answer is, I believe, they never knew what they believed and why they believe it. Once you know what you believe and why you believe it, meaning I understand the Christian doctrines, I understand where they are in the Bible, at least roughly, and what it says and why I believe it, then once you know those things, you won't be fooled by a counterfeit. I always use the money thing, right? You all know that there's a one a rare $2 bill, a 5 a 10 a 20 a 50 a 100 right? So if I said I've got a $30 bill, could you break a $30 bill? You'd really have to not be very smart to go, do you want three tens or a 20 and a 10? Look, it's got Hillary's picture on it, so it has to be real. The reason you're not fooled by that is you know the money, okay? The reason you wouldn't be fooled if I started teaching, you know, you're all gods. Isn't that great? And you all can speak reality into your lives. Most of you would get up and walk out if I was teaching that seriously, because you know the Bible says that there's one God revealed in three persons, and we're not him or her. My point is, you got to know why, what you believe and why you believe it. And that involves getting into the Bible. So familiar with the truth that you won't be fooled by a lie. Okay, I'm moving on. Question number, whatever that was. Okay, I missed my notes here. There we go. Okay. So many emailed questions. Um, let's see, we did that one. Hold on, there's more. I got to speed up because we got to get to the other ones that were emailed. Mm -hmm. Okay, there we go. Four and five. Why are unbelievers so afraid of God? Well, are they? I don't know that they are. Some are because he's just a mean guy who just wants to judge people and ruin my fun and send people to hell. He's so mean. But it's interesting that the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So someone that's afraid of God, that's sort of a good thing. Um, I don't know that they're really afraid of God, um, but... Uh, why would unbelievers not want to come to Christ was the heart of the question as well. Well, 
Number one, they're afraid of losing control of their lives. I don't want to give up control of my life. I don't want to give up my sin. Jesus says in John 3, men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. That's why they don't want to come to God. But the truth is, Ephesians 2, 1 again, dead in our trespasses and sins. Can an unbeliever come to Jesus? No. Might be surprised to hear that. Impossible. Unless, John 6, 44, the Father draws him, calls him, chooses him. You may say, well, I came on my own. I'm a very spiritual person. I investigated the different, you know, Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism, and I decided on Jesus. That's great, but no, you didn't. John 6, 44, God, Jesus talking. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So whether you knew it or not, that happened to you. You were drawn. Many are called, few are chosen. So uh, people are afraid of God for a number of reasons, or they don't want to lose control, but people mock him and disobey him. Um, so that's kind of the other end of that spectrum. Somebody else asked, um, he knows people that believe that Jesus walked on the earth, but they can't believe that he rose from the dead. And he, this person wrote, it seems to him, and he's right, that it's not that they can't believe, is that they will not believe. It's a stubborn thing. It's a will thing. It's a pride, matter of the will and a matter of pride. I have personally shown people so much evidence for the Bible, for the resurrection, for the character of Jesus Christ, for personal testimony in one ear and out the other. I've also showed people very little evidence and had them believe. Why is that? It's a matter of the will. And a matter of, is Jesus drawing and preparing that person to receive Jesus. You must be, what did I say earlier? Born again. Remember? How much did you have to do with your birth? Well, I helped and, oh, come on. Did you choose the day? You may think you did. You had nothing to do with it. You were just a little passenger down that tube and out you come, right? In the same way, why do you think Jesus chooses that analogy? You must be born again. Nicodemus says, well, can I enter my mother's womb a second time? What are you talking about? And Jesus says, the wind blows where it will, and you don't know where it goes. You have to be born again. You can't, listen, this is going to be bad English, I know. You can't born yourself. You can't birth yourself, can you? God has to give you life. Um, remember, though, what about unbelievers? They can resist the Holy Spirit who's drawing them. Stephen says so, you stiff-necked people to the people that are killing him. With uncircumcised hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, Acts 7.51. Here's another reason why don't people believe, John 4. Jesus says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you, listen, not cannot, will not believe. It's a matter of the will. Stubborn people are. Um, John 12, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, this is going to surprise you. 
unbelievers who hardened their hearts toward God, Bible, Jesus, salvation. Just like Pharaoh, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Remember? Hardened his heart, hardened his heart. You keep reading in Exodus and you know what you read? And God hardened Pharaoh's heart. You say, well, that's not fair. Oh no, God will give you what you want. You want a hard heart? There comes a point where, here comes Jesus. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see nor understand. And I would heal them. It's called in, in scholarly circles, judicial, meaning a judgment, hardening. Where you harden your heart, that's why the Bible says, accept the Lord while he may be, seek the Lord while he may be found. Almost like it's a limited time offer. If you keep hardening your heart, it might become too late. Um, some don't come to Christ for fear of social rejection, peer pressure. What will my friends think if I become a Jesus freak kind of thing? Um, the same person asks, were there many people who witnessed the empty tomb? Yes, Peter, John, Mary Magdalene, and the other women with her. The Roman guards admitted it and were paid to lie. Then there was all the resurrection appearances. Appearances, 11 disciples, James, the brother of Jesus, Paul, over 500 saw him at once. That's in 1 Corinthians 15. Then you go to all the billions of lives that have been changed by Jesus. Um, by the way, one email, this guy asked four questions. Okay, do historians record witnesses of the empty tomb? He's talking about, yes, I know James, you know, wrote a book, and Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Jesus rose from the dead. Those are all Christians. It's sort of an in-house thing. Is there histor historians, are there historians writing in those first few centuries that mention Jesus? Amazingly, there's so many of them and so much writing a lot of them aren't believers, that it, just using them throwing out the Bible, you could reconstruct the tenets of the historic Christian faith. Uh, virgin birth, dies on the cross, does miracles, uh, rises from the dead. His followers believe he's the Messiah, the Son of God. Uh, these are all historians. Thallus, T-H-A-L-L-U-S, wrote in A.D. 55, he writes about the crucifixion. On the whole world, there was a most fearful darkness. Rocks were torn by an earthquake. Josephus, the Roman historian who was a Jew, um, writes about Jesus. About this time lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he was an achiever of extraordinary deeds and was a teacher of those who accept the truth gladly. He won over many of the Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Messiah. When he was indicted by the principal men among us and Pilate condemned him to be crucified, those who had come to love him originally did not cease to do so. He appeared to them on the third day restored to life. I mean, you got the whole gospel here. This is an unbeliever writing this. Or maybe he was a believer. Some people think he became a believer. Then there's Tacitus, 116 AD, Pliny the Younger, 112 AD, Suetonius, 120 AD, Celsus, Marbar Serapion, 73 AD, Justin Martyr, Clement. There's a whole slew of historians who write about Jesus of Nazareth um, and the things that he did. Uh, last question from this guy, and we're moving on. Would the guards, back to the resurrection of Jesus. Remember, they put him in a tomb. They sealed the tomb with a huge rock, the Roman seal, for which the penalty was death if you break that seal, by the way. 
and they posted guards. You remember the Jews insisted? Wouldn't the guards have protected the tomb? Matthew 27, 62, if you're reading in your Bible. The chief priests, okay, they go, they ask for a guard. He says, take a guard, meaning a platoon of, guard, of guards, some, somewhere between 10 and 16, by the way, guards. Make the tomb as soon as you know how. They put a seal on the stone and posted the guard. I mean, I'm still in uh, Matthew 27, verse 28. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. A violent earthquake occurred. An angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, he rolled back the stone and sat on it. The appearance, his appearance, sorry, was like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. He basically knocks them all out. The next verse says, the angel said to the women, I don't know if you get the humor there, but that's humorous to me. Roman guards were tough dudes. The penalty for sleeping on guard duty was death. If you were part of the 16 guys and only Tom fell asleep, all 16 of us would be killed. They all pass out with fear. The next verse says, the angels said to the women, do not be afraid. The women didn't pass out. They're like, we're here to see Jesus. It's, it's beautiful. He is risen. Come and see the place where he laid. Um, then the guards go to the city. Some of them, it says, some of them are too afraid. They tell everything that happens. The chief priests and the elders devise a plan. They gave the soldiers a large sum of money to say his disciples came. Listen to this logic. You are to say, you guards, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. What? All 16 of you? You should be killed. Uh, that's what happened. That's why the resurrection, it has been said, is one of the most attested to facts of ancient history. Oh, there's another question. All right, it's time to take our two-minute break. Just to stretch our legs and grab a cookie, don't go away. Those of you on Zoom will be right back. Don't go away. Welcome back to the Tuesday night Bible study Q&A free for all. Stump the host. Um, okay, so somebody sent, gave me this piece of paper with, I, I recognize the scriptures that they're all about the rapture again. Uh, answer to our question, when will the rapture second coming of Christ take place. Okay, so I had a feeling this was gonna happen and we're gonna have to get into the rapture. I'm looking at the other, I'm looking at the other questions, but I don't see any that we haven't done. I think we did this, what is the purpose or meaning behind the rapture, purpose and meaning behind the wrath of God during the tribulation? Yeah, we kind of answered both of those. Okay, so let's look at the scriptures that he suggested. In fact, let's look at um, the rapture all the scriptures. Believe it or not, there's only three scriptures in the whole Bible that really talk about the rapture. There's a few others that hint about it, but there's really only a handful, we'll say. Um, okay, so we already defined our terms, um, and we already did that. I want to give you an acronym before we Look at 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians and then Matthew. 
okay? These are key passages. So listen, if you're taking notes, the word is charts. Like people make charts about the end times, C-H-A-R-T-S, you got it? Each letter stands for a word. I want you to watch for these words when it talks about the rapture. Then I want you to watch for the same words when it talks about the second coming. And I'm going to show you it's the same thing. Okay, C, charts. C is for clouds. Watch how clouds show up. H is for himself, meaning visible coming of Jesus. Not invisible, visible. Charts, C, clouds. H, himself. A, angels. Watch for these keywords. R, resurrection, the gathering of believers, the dead ones and the live ones, the changing, if you will. A for angel, uh, angels, R for resurrection. T, trumpet. Watch how this word shows up. S, shout or loud voice. We could also add under the A category, which was angels, apostasy, a falling away, and A, antichrist. All these terms, you're going to see them in the same passages. Let's turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 to 17. I'm going to try to hurry and get through this. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 15. Let's read that passage. Let me go there now. Hold on one second. There we go. 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 15. Pretty much everybody agrees this is the rapture. Okay. The question is, does it happen before the tribulation, during, or after? Um, let's pick it up in verse 13. By the way, are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay, that was good. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. Brothers and sisters, talking to Christians, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, those that have fallen asleep. Believers who died a year ago, 10 years ago, 50 years ago, they're worried that they've missed the day of the Lord. Uh, so I don't want you to be uninformed by those who sleep in death that you will not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. So we believe God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Meaning, a believer dies, the body goes into the grave, the spirit and the soul, the immaterial part, go instantly to be with the Lord. With me so far? When he comes back, he brings all those who have died in spirit and soul, and they meet their bodies and reunite with their bodies. Now, here it comes. Rapture, verse 15. According to the Lord's own word, he's saying, Jesus said this. We're going to look at Matthew 24 next. We tell you that we who are still alive at that moment, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede or go before those who've fallen asleep. There's an order. The dead ones rise first, then we get changed. Watch. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud shout. Remember the word shout in charts? A loud command. With the voice of the archangel, A, in the charts. Remember? With the trumpet, T, in charts. Call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. R in charts. Resurrection. You see why those words are all in there? After that, we, are we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the 
Clouds, another key word. That's the sea in charts. To meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Stop. That's a rapture scripture. 100%. Did he say anywhere, and it happens before the tribulation? No. Okay. At least we admit that. Okay. One thing. Go back to verse 15. We are still alive and left until the coming of the Lord. You see that? Coming is the word parousia in Greek. Okay? It means, listen, a visible presence. By the way, uh, verse 16 says the Lord himself. That's the H in charts. Remember? Visible presence. The coming of the Lord. Visible presence. Um, in 1 Thessalonians, it's the second coming in chapter 2, 3, 5. And in 2 Thessalonians 2, it's the second coming. Isn't it here? Well, no, it's a different coming here. Is it? We'll see. Um, now, uh, okay, so we saw that passage. Turn to Matthew 24 now. But keep your finger in 1 Thessalonians 4 with me, if you will. Matthew 24. Um, everybody agrees about Matthew 24 that at the very least, it's a second coming passage, which includes the tribulation. So let me just do this fast, Matthew 24. Okay. Jesus is asked three questions. He says the temple's all coming down, meaning 70 AD when the Romans take over Jerusalem. Verse 3, tell us, they said, when will this happen? Meaning the destruction of Jerusalem. Listen to the three questions. That's one. What will be the sign of your coming? Parousia, visible coming. And of the end of the age, end of the world. So there's three questions. Jesus weaves the answer into this passage. Okay. He starts talking about not being deceived in verse 4. There'll be false messiahs, wars, and rumors of wars. Those things, verse 6, have to happen, but the end is still to come. Those aren't the signs. But they're the beginning of birth pangs, meaning birth pangs start kind of softly and get louder and harder and harder, and they get closer and closer in frequency. Ladies, can I get an amen? amen. Okay. Amen. Okay. Um, so uh, let's see. Verse 15, Antichrist. Standing in the holy place, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, that's the Antichrist in Daniel chapter 7 and chapter 9. He says, split, get out of, get out of town if you can. Verse four, 21, the great tribulation. For then there will be great distress. That's thalipsis, which is a Greek word that means tribulation. How bad will it be, Jesus? Unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, never to be equaled again. If those days hadn't been cut short, wait, what days? The tribulation. If it hadn't been cut short, no one would be, no one would survive. But for the sake of somebody, he's going to shorten those days. Who is it? The elect, the chosen, the believers. That's why he's shortening those days. Wait, what are they doing on earth during the tribulation if a rapture occurred? Keep in mind, this is Jesus himself teaching on the end times, and he's going to make a huge mistake. He's going to forget to mention that he's going to come seven years before the tribulation. You think? I don't think so. Keep reading. False Messiahs, verse 24, I told you ahead of time. 
Um, look at verse 29. Finally, we get a time marker. What is it? Immediately after the tribulation or the distress of those days. Stop. When again? What he's about to say happens when, class? After the seven years. Watch. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky. Heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then, wait, where's then again? After the tribulation. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see visible coming himself, H in charts, the Son of Man coming on the what? Clouds, keyword, with power and great glory. And he will send his what? Same key words. What a coincidence. Angels with a loud what? Trumpet. Boy, this is getting to be a pretty amazing coincidence. And they will gather his elect resurrection from the four winds, meaning on earth, the people that are on earth, from one end of the heavens to the other, uh, uh, to the other, the people that have already died. Okay. Um, notice the key words. Notice that there's no question, there's no ambiguity. When is this? After the tribulation. So we had Antichrist, we had uh, these signs on the sun, moon, and stars. We had every key word that was in 1 Thessalonians, which everybody will tell you is a rapture passage. And it, Jesus, this it's not ambiguous after the tribulation. Okay, now go back to second, uh, let's go. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we already talked about that. Uh, let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Turn in your Bible, go back to Thessalonians, go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1. Okay. 2 Thessalonians 1. You know, Christians are being persecuted, uh, and... They want to know, the Thessalonians, when will we get relief? Watch. Uh, he's talking about in verse 4, persecutions and trials you're enduring. Verse 5, all this is evidence that God's judgment is right. You'll be counted worthy of the kingdom for which you're suffering. God is just, verse 6. He will pay back trouble to those who are troubling you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. When will this happen, Paul? This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed himself, visible, from heaven in blazing power with his powerful angels. Okay, is this the rapture or the second coming? Watch. He will punish those, verse 8, who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That doesn't happen if the rapture occurs before the tribulation. It's a secret coming. There's no punishment for evil. Then the tribulation starts. But if it's the end, the punishment comes as well. They'll be punished with what, Paul, verse 9? Everlasting destruction, that's hell. Shut out from the presence of the Lord, that's hell. And from the glory of his might, that's hell. When will this happen, verse 10? On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at can't be before the tribulation because this is saying that's when he'll pay back your enemies for persecuting you. It doesn't happen before the tribulation. Okay, let's keep rolling. 
Second Thessalonians, that's where we are now, I believe, right? Let's go to chapter 2. This is a key thing to look at. Second Thessalonians 2, are you there? What's the subject matter concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him? Pause. Did you catch that? The coming of our Lord, that's the second coming. And our being gathered to him, that's the rapture. Except Paul made a mistake, he got the order wrong. He's got the second coming before the rapture, or at the same time. He's calling it one event, folks. Concerning the coming, same word, by the way, parousia, visible coming, of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered to him, that's the rapture. We ask you, don't become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us. See, people were saying it's already happened, and they're getting worried. He's writing to them. Verse 3, don't let anyone deceive you. That day will not come until, pause, pre-tribulation rapture, people believe Jesus could come back at any moment, right now or right now, not biblically. What did Paul just say? Our being gathered to him and his coming can't occur, verse 3, until some other things happen. Number one, the rebellion, the apostasy, the falling away occurs. Well, has that already happened? Well, people are more evil now than they used to be. There's people not going to church who used to. Maybe that's happening. Let's say it is. Okay. What's the second thing? The man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. That's the Antichrist. Can anybody tell me who he is for sure? He hasn't been revealed yet. So, <laughs> so what does that mean? That means there's no way the Lord can rapture his church yet because those things haven't happened. This is the doctrine of imminence in the pre-tribulation rapture. Imminence means it could happen at any moment. Don't get me wrong. We ought to be ready. We ought to watch. But wait, Joe, the Lord says in his word that his coming will be like a thief in the night and catch people unaware. See, it's unknown the time. But in the same passage, he says, I have it in my notes somewhere. I'm skipping around here. He says, but you're not asleep so that that day will surprise you like a thief. Believers will watch the signs, that's why he gave them, so we'll know the general time. Paul is making them feel comfortable that, don't worry, people say the rapture's already happened and you missed it. Why doesn't he just say, well, you're still here, so it couldn't have happened. He says it the way he does. Notice the order, the coming of our Lord and our being gathered to him, uh, it can't happen until some other things happen. Um, Matthew 24, I forgot to mention, verses 10, right around 10 to 13, then many will fall away. There's the apostasy during the tribulation. Okay, go to 1 Corinthians 15 with me. We're trying to go quickly. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter. We just finished 1 Corinthians, praise God. Look at verse 50. 
So I declare, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable, meaning a, a, a body that can get sick and die, inherit the imperishable. Here comes the rapture. Everybody agrees this is the rapture. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep dead in the grave. Not all of us. Some will be alive. But we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last what? Trumpet. Trumpet. Coincidence is it? For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised. Resurrection, back in charts, remember the R for resurrection? The dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Um, okay, so there's, there's the rapture there. Go, stay in 15, chapter 15. Go to verse 22. For in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, he rose 2,000 years ago. Then when he comes, parousia, visible coming, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Look at verse 24. Let's assume the pre-tribulation rapture people are right. When he comes, that's when we'll rise. You got it? When he comes, those who belong to him rise. Look at verse 24. Then the end will come. Wait, why doesn't it say, then the seven-year tribulation will come? Why does Jesus warn his disciples about the tribulation, the persecution, the Antichrist, when they're never going to see him if the rapture occurs before the tribulation? Why warn people about something they're not going to see? Unless they are going to see it. Okay. Now, where do we want to go now? Uh, Revelation 20. This is really like the icing on the cake here. Go to Revelation. That's an easy book to find. Revelation chapter 20. Because again, what we're looking for isn't, is there a rapture? I believe there's a rapture. We're looking for the, here's when it will happen. Because that's the whole thing. Revelation 20. This is after the tribulation. Revelation 20. Mm, he's, an angel comes down out of heaven, verse 1. He seizes the dragon, which is Satan, binds him for a thousand years. That's the millennium. He threw him into the abyss, locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations until the thousand years were ended. That's the end of the millennium. Verse 4. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. I saw the souls who had been beheaded because of their testimony and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image. They didn't get the mark on the forehead or the hands. When does that occur, class? During the what? Tribulation. You got to agree. This is after the tribulation. They came to life. Resurrection. When? After the tribulation. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead, unbelievers, did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Look at the next five words in verse five. This is the first resurrection. So could there be a resurrection before the first resurrection? No, because then it wasn't the first then. When's the first resurrection? After the tribulation. This is what the church almost unanimously believed forever. John 6, 39 and 40. 
Jesus talks about his believers. And do you know what he says about believers? At least three times, I think it's four or five. Listen, so simple. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. Listen to this. And I will raise them up at the last day. Again, in verse 40, I will raise them up at the last day. John eleven twenty four. I will raise them up on the last day. Let me ask you this. Could there be a day after the last day? No, then it wasn't the last day. When does the last trumpet occur? It's in Revelation, at the end of the tribulation. Could there be another trumpet after the last trumpet? No. All these things are lining up. Revelation 1-7 says about Christ's return, every eye shall see him. Visible coming, he himself. Um, and when all kindreds of the earth will wail because of them. The preacher of rapture is an invisible rapture. Okay. Here's an interesting one, and I think, oh, no, I don't have it. Um, oh, here it is. Tom's. Matthew 24, 36 to 44. So go back to Matt. I should have done this when we were there. Sorry. Go back to Matthew 24. Oops. Matthew 24, and go to verse 40. There we go. No, 36 is where we want to start. Matthew 24. And go to verse 36. So that's after the tribulation. We saw that in 29. 36. About that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, only the Father. Now, some pre-tribulation rapture believers say, see, that's why you're wrong, Joe. Because we know the tribulation is going to be seven years. If we know when the tribulation exactly starts, we could count seven years forward and be able to predict the day. Maybe not the hour, but we'd know the day. And this verse says, no one knows the day or the hour. You follow the logic? Is that where you were going with this, Tom? No? Okay, but I'll throw it in. Okay. No one will know the day or the hour. But the problem with this is... Um, Two things. Number one, uh, about that day and hour, no one knows present tense when this is being written. It doesn't mean that we won't see the signs and start to figure it out. I personally believe all hell's going to break out, break loose on planet Earth to the point that you won't be able to say September 19th, 2024 is when the tribulation started. Let's count forward the days. I don't think we're going to know the precise day. I think we'll be close a day or two off, a week or two off. It's going to be hard to tell when the exact date is. Um, as it was in the days of Noah, that's what we quoted earlier, which is the worst time in human history. They're eating and drinking. They knew nothing what happened to them until the flood came and took them away. Listen, who was surprised by the flood? Noah? His family? They were expecting it. Who was surprised? All the unbelievers. Jesus' return, we're going to have an idea. It's getting close. The signs are lining up. The unbelievers, phew, no idea. It's going to shock them. He's going to come like a thief in the night to them, not to us. 
Um, let's keep reading Tom's passage here. Okay, and they knew nothing would ha- w- w- that would happen. This is how it'll be at the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 40, two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two men will be, two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken, the other left. Therefore, keep watch because you don't know on what day your Lord would come. Um, be ready. It's, he's going to come in an hour. You don't know. Okay, Tom, is your point on this? The two men in the field, one will be taken. That's a Christian, a rapture. Okay. All right. Um, let's go to Matthew. Oh, I hope I can find it. Um, let's go to Matthew. It's either 12 or 13. Uh, let's try 12. It's either 12 or 13. Mm-hmm. No, it doesn't look like it's 12. <laughs> um, Matthew 13. Let's try that. Hope I'm right on this one or we're really in trouble. Matthew 13. Mm-hmm. Okay, the parable of the weeds. Um, well, parable of the weeds sort of fits in. Um, verse 29, because you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let growth, let both grow, meaning the unbelievers and the believers, let both, both grow until the harvest. At that time, I'll tell the harvesters, first collect who? The weeds, the unbelievers, and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat into my barn. Hold on, I've got, I, I know I have another document that talks about this. Imminence, yeah, that's the one. Um, oh, I hope it is. Yeah, oh, it's Luke. Or is it? <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Well, um, a mustard seed, the weeds, uh gosh i'm not finding it but profit without honor the point is in the passage most people use where one's taken and one's left the ones that are taken are taken for judgment um the ones that are left remember the books left behind tim lahay oh you don't want to be left behind in that parable you want to be left behind the ones that are taken out that are killed or that are judged are the unbelievers. Say that again. Tim LaHaye is pre-trib, was pre-trib. Yeah, you're right all the way. Um, Go to Mark 13 now because we're almost out of time. How many people have other questions? We're doing pretty good. Oh, Bill has one. All right, hold on, Bill. Mark, did I say 13? Yeah, Mark 13 is the parallel passage to Matthew 24. It's almost the same, but there's a, it's a little different. He's saying, watch out, verse 5, nobody deceives you. When will these things happen? Be on your guard. Brother will betray brother. There's the Antichrist in verse 14. You see it? Um, for the sake of the elect, verse 20. That's believers whom he has chosen. He shortened the days. What days? The days of the tribulation. What are believers doing on the earth during the tribulation? Unless the rapture is at the end, not at the beginning. 
Um, okay, false messiahs. Again, following that distress, verse 24, following that tribulation, same thing. They'll see the Son of Man, visible coming, clouds, send his angels, gather his elect, resurrection. Um, yeah, heaven and earth will pass away. Um, hmm. Don't find you sleeping. He says to everyone, watch. Why would he say watch unless he wanted us to watch for the signs he's mentioned as gateposts or signposts to figure out that he's coming soon? Um, Bill, nice and loud, what is your question? Because I got to repeat it. Oh, that's right. Right, but I need you to be concise. Sorry with the question. Oh, I'm sorry. The question I'm sorry. That to me sounds like regeneration of the spirit. And what verse are you talking about? Oh, I'm talking about chapter seven. John. John seven. Uh, John seven thirty-eight. Seven thirty-eight. Okay. I remember your email now, and somewhere I have it here, and I don't know what I did with it. Um, So the question is, does, do they have the spirit then yet, or do they get it on Pentecost or when he breathes on them? My question, I guess, is there a difference between the spirit as regeneration, which is living water, which seems like it didn't happen until then? Yes. Or the spirit as signs and wonders? Um, yeah. The, and, signs and wonders, Saul prophesied, Balaam prophesied. Yes. Balaam wasn't even righteous. And so you've got the spirit working throughout scripture. So look at this verse that says, Yes. Look at verse 39 of John, John 7. That by this he meant the Spirit. With those who believed in which those who were believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been glorified. I don't believe, good one, I don't believe that the Holy Spirit could be indwelling anybody ever until Jesus dies on the cross. Why? Because I, I got a sinful heart here. Holy Spirit does not want to roommate the devil or my ego. He has to wait until Jesus pays for the sins. I know you agree with that. Um, so I believe that he, but he does breathe on them in the upper room and say, receive the Holy Spirit. I think, pardon me? Oh, is it? Is it? Okay. Um, but they don't really get it in power until Pentecost in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit, right? Is that what you're talking about? So I believe that they, the reason they all notice, he goes, he gets arrested. Do you remember what they do? They all split, right? They all chicken out. They're all in the upper room hiding. Why? They don't have the Holy Spirit. 
you see these cowards change completely when they get the Holy Spirit. It's amazing. I don't think that they're separate, my own opinion, anointings of the Holy Spirit. In other words, I believe all believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Um, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, the word says. And it, somewhere in Romans, it says a similar thing. I believe that the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of each one of us. Okay, well then why is he, he has the Holy Spirit and he's just anointed and he can prophesy and he can teach and he and this guy or this gal, not so much. I believe that we can, even though the Spirit dwells inside of us, resist and get confused with other things and distracted, whereas this guy is praying and just surrender to God, do with me what you will, use me. That, that's what I believe. I don't think there's a separate anointing. But you do see it in Acts chapter 2. Man, they're speaking in tongues. Peter preaches a sermon, and the Spirit's moving. Thousands get saved. Does that answer your question? It does, but still, David said, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Yes. I agree with you. David said, take not the whole, I have to repeat. And I agree with you that, that Jesus, his death on the cross fundamentally He's saying Jesus' death on the cross fundamentally changed right, everything. The, the ability, the yes. I know what will answer your question. Wasn't the Holy Spirit given to Elijah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all those guys? That's before the cross. Yes. God could let the Holy Spirit visit land on someone for the purpose of prophesying for writing scripture but david you're right sins with bathsheba and says oh lord please don't take your holy spirit from me meaning it could come and go you sin and you're out not true for you and me because jesus has now paid for the sins of the world can we grieve the holy spirit by sinning yes can we grieve the holy spirit by you know disregarding the word of God or not coming to church or especially Tuesday night Bible study. Yes. But, but the point is he will never leave us. We can grieve him, but he, we don't have to pray. Please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Instead, we pray, forgive me, Lord, for that sin. I know it was sin. I turn from it. I repent. And I know Jesus 2000 years ago paid for that sin and the others. And I thank you for that kind of thing. That's what I think the difference is. The prophets, a spirit came and went with us. He lives inside of us forever. Praise God. We're, we're saved. Okay. We're out of time. How many still have questions? One, two, three. Um, do you want to email me? There's only three of you. Do you want to email me? But I didn't ask the Zoom people, and I can't really. Uh, do you want to just email me the questions? I'll ask them, because I considered, do we do another Q&A thing and make me sweat bullets again? Uh, and I hope we don't. Um, all three of you, please email me follow-up questions. That's the best way to do this. Um, isn't it fun? Yes. Extra deodorant tonight. No, but that's in the process of being changed, by the way. Oh, is it? It is. Um, but she mentioned, she said, you didn't mention what this particular church believes. The, the, uh, the original pastor of this church is pre-trib on the rapture. He believes the rapture occurs before the tribulation. Let me say, to be fair, there's some incredibly great scholars that believe that. Incredibly great ones. Um, and the, we don't say that that happens. We, we, we get at the yeah. Yes. Right. 
It's kind of under review uh, because there are many that don't teach or believe that, me being one of them. Um, we didn't talk about a few uh, other scriptures because we didn't get time. Um, yeah. So anyway, here's the update. We're gonna, uh, Next week, I'm on vacation, so no Bible study. The following week, we'll start the book of Matthew. The, the, uh, but I looked at the calendar today and went, oh, no, because then the week after that is the 4th of July, and we'll probably take that week off as well for Bible study. So no Bible study next week. Then we'll start Matthew. We'll take a week off. Then we'll continue. Thank you for listening. Believe me, I, I come to this position humbly because I know how little I know compared to God, compared to some of you. The rapture is not a salvation issue. If you believe it's pre-trib, great. Mid-trib, you're not sure. It's not like God's going to go, no, you've got to know I'm coming at the end or the beginning. It's not a salvation issue. But people love to debate it, uh, including me. I'll send you the documents. If you get the email that has the notes, you'll get those. Let's pray and we'll get out of here. Whew. Thank you, Father, for this time we could be, spend in your word and answer your answer the questions, Father. And I admit I still have some questions myself, Father. But the main things are the plain things in the Bible. We know that Jesus was fully God and fully man and is our second Adam, our representative who died for our sins because he loved us that much and rose from the dead. And praise God, we are saved and forgiven and now sons and daughters of you because of that. And we will rise again when Christ returns. We praise you for that, God. Use these truths to make us hopeful for the future. Whenever the millennium is or the rapture is or however it all pans out, we submit to your will in all things, God. Help us to be ready, but in the meantime, help us to use every moment for your glory in some way or another. Thank you for this time we could share. We pray all these things in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. That's very important if you're here. Those of you on Zoom, sorry for going a little late. God bless you all. Thanks for being here. You're a courageous man.